Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. We've been doing a series on uh, this service on the life of King David, one of the characters in the Old Testament. We've called it 10 Rules for Life from the story of King David. And most of the time we've been looking at stuff either that David did that we thought, that was pretty good, let's learn some lessons from that, or things that God did in David's life that makes us reflect anew on what God's like and what we can take from it. But tonight's going to be a little bit different, because tonight I'm going to address the elephant in the room. And if you know David's story well, if you've read it in the Bible, you might know what I mean by that, because we're going to look at David's darkest hour. This is a grim story. This is a story, rather than learning from what David did, thinking this is a great lesson for what we should do, we're going to learn from what he did as, whoa, this is something we should really learn from what not to do. In fact, so much so, this is one of those rare chapters in the Bible that rather than just telling you what happens, you get God's verdict given at the end of the chapter. And it says in verse 27 of the chapter that we'll be in, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So if you see a chapter of the Bible and then it's like, P.S., God thought this was bad, that's quite a stark thing to read, isn't it? So The story that we're going to read today is a story about a man who had power, who abused his position. It's a story of sexual coercion, and it's a story of murder. So, if you're wondering why Tim Simmons has pretended to be ill for the last week, (laughs) it's because he was meant to be preaching this one. (laughs) I'll set some context. (laughs) What? What? You can live with it. (laughs) So if you've got a Bible, 2 Samuel 11 is where we will be. And in the first verse of the chapter, we see that this King David, who we've been looking at, has started to drift a little bit from where he's been earlier in the story. Because when we were first introduced to King David... He was this scrappy kid. He was a shepherd up in the fields, and he spent his days and his nights worshipping God. And then when the enemy were there, and there was a Goliath and the Philistine army, and he issued a challenge, and no one else had the faith to take him on. David was like, come on, I'll do it. In the name of God, we can get victory here. And he was such a, a great example through those early years. But now, something has shifted. And we're told that he was meant to be at war. He was meant to be leading his army at war. And he decided this year he was going to sack the whole thing off. He, was just, he wasn't going to sack the war off. He was still going to send all the men and all the soldiers to fight. But he himself wasn't going to go. He was going to stay in Jerusalem, stay in his palace, stay in all the comfort, all the nice food that he got, not having to, to rough it in the, in the war camps, but just being at home enjoying the privileges that come with being king, but not taking the responsibilities of the position. You see, what started to shift in David's mind by the time we hit the story we're going to read today is his view of power and what power is about and what leadership is all about. Now, Jesus had something to say on how power should be used. He said in Mark chapter 10, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles 
lord it over them. That's kind of like what David's doing now. I, I want to lord it over my people. I don't want to be a responsible king who does good things. I just want to be in charge and enjoy being king in my palace. But Jesus had a very different view. He said, whoever would be great among you must be a servant. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. David's moved away from Jesus-style leadership into worldly leadership, power-based leadership, and he's done something very destructive in his soul. I'm going to read four verses of the story, and we're going to pick it up from verse 2 of 2 Samuel 11. So this is what happened. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David saw Bathsheba. I wonder if you've come across this story before. I wonder if you've heard teaching on this story before. I wonder if you've thought about this story before. How does this story play out in your head? What's going on? How, how would you tell this story? Often it's told in ways that just don't really match up with what we've just read. So there's a movie poster that I came across. Um, and if you see at the bottom, that is apparently what happened. That's Bathsheba and David. Let's kind of just lay that one aside. I don't see that, that kind of um, seductress Bathsheba and David thinking he's a Premier League footballer scored. A goal. That, that, that's not the vibe I get. Or you might have heard the the famous song, Hallelujah. He saw her bathing on the roof, the beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. I don't think that's quite what's going on either. For one, she wasn't bathing on the roof. I don't know if you noticed in the verses. He was on the roof. doesn't say anything about her being on the roof, which makes sense because baths don't go on roofs. It's a slightly odd thing. Tim and I were messaging earlier in the week about this passage and about this story, and Tim said something insightful. This is a positive thing, Tim. I'm going to quote you now in an approving way. He said this, I realise I've heard lots of teaching on this, and most of it is by men who blame Bathsheba. And when he said that, I, I was thinking, well, what have I heard on this? Yeah, it's exactly the same. We tell this story in a way that makes out that Bathsheba's somehow in the wrong, that she somehow led King David astray, that she's somehow been this kind of exhibitionist seductress that has taken pure King David and led him off the path. That's not at all what we've read in the verses, though. When we look at what the Bible says about what's going on, it's a different story. Tells us that what Bathsheba was doing, she was having a ritual bath. So in those days, every month at the end of a period, a woman would have a certain kind of ritual bath. That's what she's doing. She's not up there flaunting herself or anything like that. David's the one. He's gone up on the roof. Now, all his mates are off at the war. Xboxes weren't invented. So there wasn't much for, for poor old King David to do now. He's ducked out of his battle. So he goes for a wander on his roof, and he's, you can imagine him just pacing a bit restless, waiting for reports from the battle. And then he sees Bathsheba. We don't know uh, if the first glance was deliberate or not, but uh, 
is, is he staring? Is he knowing, oh, there's Bathsheba, I've seen her before, that's her window, I want to look through it? Or is he just walking and catches a glimpse? We don't know. But we certainly know the second glance was deliberate and the third glance. He's, he's noticed through the window, so he's now perving on her. He's looking at her. He's intensely staring at her. It's like this lust switches on inside him. In the New Testament, James writes, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's not Bathsheba that lured and enticed David. It's himself. It's his own desire. It's this thing that he's indulging. So David sends for her. Imagine the story at this moment from Bathsheba's perspective. Surely she would have had no idea what was going on. She just, uh, she's got out of this bath, there's a knock on the door, and these messengers have come. We, we're not told how many, but it's plural. So multiple people have come to her house saying, the king is asking you to go to the palace. At this point, there's no explanation what it's about. One of the commentators who wrote about this passage, David Toshio Samara, said it's hardly likely that David makes his intention clear when he summons Bathsheba. So she's been summoned to come to the palace. It's also really important to realise that in a story like this, there's a huge power dynamic at play. And if you, if you don't understand that, you won't understand the story. David is the king. He has all the power in the world. He can speak and things happen. Bathsheba has very little power, very little influence. It would have been very, very difficult in her position to say no when these messengers from the king have come and said, you are summoned to the palace. Edith Dean said, according to the laws, Bathsheba could not have resisted had she desired. For women in these ancient times were completely subject to a king's will. If he desired her, he could have her. So it says David took Bathsheba. It's not explicitly recorded in this passage how Bathsheba felt about the situation. And that in and of itself, I think, is quite a telling thing. It's like in David's eyes, as he's living out this story, it's like he's not worried about it. He doesn't care. He's not even asking the question, what does she want? How does she feel? Because he knows what he wants. The language used is pretty telling. Verse 4 says, he took her. What kind of image does that bring to mind? It doesn't sound like a mutual thing, does it? It doesn't sound like a consensual thing. Then later on in the same verse, it says, he lay with her. Usually in the Old Testament, if it's talking about people sleeping together, it would say, they laid together. Not in this passage. It said, he laid with her. These two phrases, he took her and he laid with her, they occur together in a number of different Old Testament passages. And in each of those passages, it's describing a rape. And that's the real story of David and Bathsheba. It's not the story we often hear told, is it? We, we portray this story differently to how it is. But no wonder at the end of the chapter it says that God was displeased with what David had done. There's a great website called Theology of Work. And I was looking at it because it wrote about this chapter of the Bible. And I just want to give a little extended quote from it because I think it's really helpful as we think about what's happened and think about how we apply it today for our own situations 
and our own lives. It says, while few of us have as much authority as David did, many of us have power in smaller spheres, in family or work contexts, either as a result of our sex, race, position, wealth, or other status markers, or simply as we get older, gain experience, and have more responsibility. It's tempting to take advantage of our power and privilege, thinking that we've worked hard for these perks, even though people with less power don't share them. Conversely, many of us are vulnerable to those in power for the same reasons, although on the opposite end of the power distribution. It may be tempting to think that those in vulnerable positions ought to try to defend themselves, as many have thought with regard to Bathsheba. The text presents no evidence that she attempted to refuse David's sexual imposition. Therefore, as this kind of thinking goes, oh, she must have been a willing participant. But as we have seen, the Bible rejects this kind of thinking. The victim of a crime is always the victim of a crime, no matter how much or little resistance he or she may have attempted. That's Bathsheba's story. It's important that we tell that story and that we don't gloss over it. There's a lot of stories we've told over the last few weeks about David that were good, that he did well. But this story is grim, dark, and evil. Excuse me. (laughs) There are way too many women with stories like Bathsheba's that are not heard and that are ignored. And there are way too many men like David who abuse their power and get away with it. So we're doing 10 rules for life. This is today's rule, and it's an important one. Don't abuse your power. Don't abuse your power. There are lots of ways that power dynamics can play out. The quote that I I gave showed there are lots of different factors that can create an opportunity for a power imbalance and therefore abuse. It's also important to say that abuse of power isn't always men abusing power towards women. Men might abuse power towards other men. Women might abuse power to men or to women. But men abusing power to women is by far the most common way this plays out. And it's the thing that's brought out in this story. And I think it's an important thing that we speak about it. And that's what I want to do this evening. Sexual harassment and sexual assault of women is a huge issue in our culture. I want to share some stats with you that I came across. According to the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, there are 4.9 million women in our country who are victims of sexual assault, 1.4 million of rape or attempted rape, and last year only 1,439 people were convicted of rape. That is absolutely shocking. According to YouGov, who did a poll, seven out of ten women have experienced sexual harassment in public. And if they filter it down to younger women, that goes up to nine out of ten. Over half of women have experienced catcalling. Four out of ten have been groped or faced unwanted touching in public. A third have been followed, and one in five have faced indecent exposure. Now, I share these statistics, and I think there'll be people in this room who hear them and think this is obvious. This is something that I know, and I know it too well. And there'll be other people in here who find these really surprising. 
I found these statistics really surprising when I came across them earlier this year. I, I knew that all these issues existed. I had no idea of the uh, prevalence of them, of how common these things were. When I saw the stats, I started asking people, is this, is this real? Is this how much this is happening? I was told, yes, it is. But I'm a bloke, and this isn't my day-to-day -day experience, and so I'm kind of blinded to the fact that this is going on, and it's going on so much. And when I realized it, it shocked me, and it kind of broke me, actually, that this is the world we live in. I want to apply it in three ways, particularly to, to the blokes here. Number one, let's be aware of this. Let's not be blind to this any longer. Let's see that this is going on, because... If we want to support our female friends, we need to know what the situation is. Let's, let's have some awareness. Secondly, and what I'm about to say now, really, it does go without saying. It should go without saying. So forgive me for saying this, but sometimes what goes without saying should be said, if you know what I mean. So men, let's, let's make sure, please, we're not being part of this problem. Let's not act inappropriately towards women. Let's not harass women, catcall women, leer at women, inappropriately touch women. Let's not send inappropriate pictures to women. Let's not sexualize women in the way we talk about them. Let's not pressure or insist on a woman to do anything she doesn't want to do, whether that's a hug, whether it's accepting a lift. Let's not constantly message women who are not reciprocating and responding. Let's not act inappropriately towards women in any way. I could list a lot more examples there as well, and I know this is basic stuff, but it's really important stuff. As God's people, I believe we should be taking a lead on this. If, if this is broken in culture, let's be the people of God and let's act in a different and redeemed way. Imagine the impact it would have if every man who knew God acted with a different kind of integrity. That'd be so powerful, wouldn't it? And sadly, that's not always happened. I was on a, a road trip a couple of weeks ago chatting with my friend Andy, and we were just talking about all the examples we know, some famous, some people who we've met, who we, we've encountered ourselves, who have been saying they're, they're following God, who've been saying they're Christians, a lot who've had power and influence and leadership, and the way they've acted on this has not been as it should be. Let's, let's be different, yeah? And I know that then, for many who hear kind of that list that I've just given, I think, well, yeah, that's obvious and I'm doing that stuff. Then another question that we might ask is, well, okay, I'm doing that, but is there more that I can do? This is the question that, since I came across those numbers earlier in the year that I've been wrestling with, that I've been asking about, that I've been talking about, and I think there is more that we can do. I think it goes beyond just not doing bad stuff. Because it, it came to my attention, and again, this will be obvious to many people, but it came to my attention, if, if all this is happening so often, then situations that for me, I don't think about, for, for women, might be seen very differently. It could be a situation, to at least ask a question, am I safe? Is this situation okay? Is there a problem with this? I'll give you an example, right? So I'm, 
I'm walking home and I'm just going down my route. I'm minding my own business. I'm not doing anything. And there's a woman ahead of me and she's going the same direction. She's minding her own business, not doing anything. So I'm just walking and, and I can be completely mindless to the situation and switched off. But in her head, okay, now there's a guy walking behind me. Uh, is he fine? He might be fine. He might not be fine. Uh, and if I happen to be going the same route for a reasonable amount of time, I could be creating fear. I don't want to do that. So is there more that I can do? Well, I can quite easily avoid creating a situation of fear. Just slow down a bit so I'm not matching her pace. Or I go on the other side of the road. It's easy to avoid these situations if we, if we become aware of them. A lot of the time we're not. Another example, I was in a pub a few days ago, and you know how pubs are laid out and there's tables in different places? There was just quite a narrow gap to walk through to where I was going, and there was a woman who wanted to walk through the gap the other way, and there was enough room in this gap that we could both pass each other, and nothing inappropriate would happen. We wouldn't come into physical contact with each other or anything, but there wasn't a lot of what you could call like escape room. So like if, if, if someone did choose to act in an inappropriate way, there'd be no escape. So I could think, well, this, this is fine. There's nothing dodgy about this. So we'll just both walk where we're walking. But because I've been thinking about this more, I just realized, well, that could potentially create a, a worry, a situation to at least assess, is this dangerous or not dangerous? Isn't it just easier to just step aside, let her come through the gap, and then go on my way? After? These are tiny examples. And I'm, uh, th there are many more. I'm trying to think about this a lot more that I have in the past. Let me encourage and invite you to start thinking this way. Because this is the culture that we're living in. And if we're God's guys in this, let's, let's just be different to what everyone else is like. David messed up. David totally blew it. And there's actually more to David's story in this chapter, even than what I've told you so far. Let me just kind of round out the chapter, because we, we left by... Bathsheba sending word that she was pregnant. Now, David, once you realize that, oh, she's pregnant, right, I'm going to be rumbled here because all the other guys are off fighting a war. I'm like the man left in the city. There's going to be a bit of suspicion. So what he does is he, he arranges for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who's one of the, the soldiers at quite a senior level. And he's like, Uriah, you've been doing so well in this war. I want to applaud your fighting prowess. Come home, ha have a weekend off. Spend some time with your wife. Have a nice dinner. Maybe have a couple of glasses of wine. Spend time together. And he's thinking that if he could create this situation where Uriah sleeps with Bathsheba, then the pregnancy can be explained away. Now, Uriah, he's... He's just a different gravy, really, to, to David, because he gets there like, on the king's orders, and he's like, hang on a second. You want me to have this privilege? You want me to have this power as a senior soldier who's been favoured by the king? So I get to have a weekend off when all the rest of the guys are out fighting and living in tents and putting their lives at risk? No, no, no. I, I'm not going to abuse my power in that way, David. Hint, hint, David, still in Jerusalem, not at the war this time, are you? I, I can't do that. If you really want me to still be in Jerusalem for the weekend, fine, but I'm going to sleep on my doorstep. I'm not even going to go into my own house. So that's what he does, and he won't do it. So in the end, David sends some orders with Uriah back to the front line to give to the general. They're sealed, so Uriah can't see them. But when the general reads it, he says, right, next battle, put Uriah at the front 
and then once you engage the enemy, the rest of you leg it, leave him on his own and let the enemy kill him. And so that's what happens, and Uriah is murdered. So this story is so much more I could talk about. This is another example, isn't it, of David abusing his power, abusing his position, trying to gain for himself at the cost of hurt to someone else. I could talk more about that. I could talk about the cover-up, that once you've done something wrong, it leads you to do more and more and more wrong. You're piling sin upon sin upon sin to cover up the consequences of the first one. But what I want to talk about from this last bit of the story is Uriah himself, is the righteous man. At the event I was at a couple of weeks ago with a few other leaders from CCM, I'm, I'm not sure why, but I just felt this stirring to pray about the topic of honour. And by honour, I'm not talking about honouring other people, I'm talking about actual honour, living in a way that has integrity, that is honour-worthy. And to be honest, right, this story, this preach, this whole topic, as a man, I find it incredibly depressing and sickening to read this. And particularly because when we switch on the news, when we read our newspapers, we hear story after story after story after story that all carry similar vibes. A man with a position of power abuses it and harms other people. And then you get the commentary on it, and people say, okay, what's happening is men are being men. It's just men acting like men act. And there's something in me that, just on a deep level, wants to reject that that's what manhood has to be. To reject that being a man is no more than what we see in David. That isn't true. God's got something better for manhood. And we see it in Uriah. We see in this guy something totally different. We see honour, we see integrity, we see someone who has power and doesn't abuse it. I find that inspiring. It's a different vision of what manhood can be. This story is where David is showing us manhood at its worst and Uriah shows us manhood at its best. Let me say this, living as a man with integrity is possible. It's possible. Yes, power exists and yes, privilege exists exists, but power doesn't have to be abused. And that's Jesus, isn't it? Think about what he did. He had all the power, heavens and earth. He created it all. It was all made through him and for him, absolutely sovereign. And what did he do with his power? He chose to come into our world, and he chose to take the lowest place. He chose to serve, and he chose to die for us. He didn't use his power for his own gain, but he laid it down for our good. That verse... I started with, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think there are some in here who, as I've been talking about this, you feel like Uriah. You feel like, I've been doing the right stuff. I've been living well. I've been honourable. I've lived with integrity. And maybe you're even thinking, where did that get me? But if you've been living that way, let me commend you. Let me say, well done. Let me say God sees that and honours that. That's a good thing. Keep going with that. I'm going to finish now. I wonder if um, the musicians would jump forward. Often when I finish a preach, I want to tie up the loose threads. I want all the loose ends to come together, all neatly and nicely, and then we can move forward from that. Today I don't want to tie up the loose ends at all. Because a story like this, it's meant to unsettle us. It's meant to ask questions. It's meant to make us think. It is a messy story. It shows how messy 
our world is, and it shows that we need God. And the fact that in the New Testament, then in Jesus' genealogy, we see Bathsheba and we see David, that shows that God can, and he will, and he does, work even through the messiest of situations.